Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital is Patrick Ireland. Patrick is Majority Shareholder and Senior Director of Patrick Ireland Frames Limited, a specialist in commercial high quality picture and mirror framing. Uh, Patrick, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. It's a real pleasure for us to welcome you onto the airwaves with us as well. Um, At this point in time, we normally dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the major challenge that has faced all of us this year, I feel it's appropriate that we approach that from the COVID-19 standpoint, because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for you and your business, Patrick, what effect has it had? Well, immediately, it it, it, it was as though... um, We'd hit a brick wall at the end of the, well, I can't remember the date now exactly when it was, the end of March. Um, mm. Everything sort of came to a shuddering halt. Um, we deal a lot with um, uh, interior designers, hotels, and people of that. We don't have any retail presence at all. Um, and a lot of a lot of the work we do is involved in uh, large-scale project, projects on hotels or private houses um, of sort of high-wealth individuals and things like that. And so what what happened was that the, these projects were all – they weren't cancelled, but they were just put on hold. So we'd, we'd, we'd done all the build-up, and we we're all ready to go, and they stopped. And the, basically all the projects were cancelled and put on hold. They couldn't get on site for during lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. So we were left sitting on our hands a bit, and we had to make we had to decide where to go from there. And the, the first the first real issue I had was looking at the cash effect that this was going to have, because the most important thing was to make sure that we were going to be able to survive um, lockdown for however long it lasted. And um, mm-hmm. yes, carry on, Patrick. So, so that that was my main concern. I, I I trained as a chartered accountant before I before I started the business, and so mm. I was sort of quite well versed in how to look at these things. And um, fortunately, we had fairly good reserves in the company, and uh, the furloughing uh, came in it came in, 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 into into practice. And that between the two, I was then able to project that we we were probably going to be. We would probably be all right for four or five months. Um, uh, at that stage, nobody knew how long it was going to last. So, um, you know, that that in itself was a bit of a comfort, but it was still nonetheless a short term. Uh, it was short term, really. Yes, and um, looking back over the experience that you have had over the uh, the last few months in sort of pivoting to deal with this, is there anything you'd say that in your leadership capacity you've learned from having to adapt to this crisis? Yeah, we. I, I think probably one of the one of the most difficult aspects was 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 with the staff really because I, I think the messages coming from government were. A little bit 
um, muddling. And mm. although um, I understood what was what was, for instance, with the furloughing system, what was going on, um, the people who I furloughed didn't really understand what it was about, and they sort of thought that they could choose when they wanted to be furloughed. They didn't realise that actually furloughing wasn't just a given a gift from the government to me. It was up to me to decide whether I needed it and then to claim it and, you know, hopefully receive it. And it, it, they were all very worried about their jobs, understandably. Uh, and I, it was it was a question of striking a balance with them. And as soon as the opportunities arose, after, after the initial period of furlough being with three, being three, in three week blocks was actually very difficult because we did have bits of work coming in, and you either people would say, "Oh, I need this urgently," and you hadn't got anybody there, so you couldn't do it, and you, you didn't. You had to sit, sit the three weeks out and say, "Well, you could have it in four weeks' time or whatever," and this was all very unsatisfactory. So we had to manage. We had to manage our time as best we could, um, and once the furloughing structure broke down where you could you could actually bring people in for short periods it made life a great deal easier because we were still getting business coming in but it was very difficult managing how to how to manufacture it yes can certainly understand where you're coming from from that point of view and um in sort of a leadership sense how was it just trying to sort of manage all of the uncertainty and all of the worry amongst your staff members as well because i can imagine there were quite a few sort of worried faces um as you say during those times yeah i think I I think that it was I I had to I had to reassure them that you know that mm. I had that we had reserves and and we we weren't running on empty and um, but it was very important that we manage those reserves and so um, if we were, if people were going to come in and start working it was very important that they that, that that we got the most out of them during that that period so that we could generate generate the income we needed to move forward uh, but but to, I, it had to be sort of if you like sold to them that you know this is actually if we keep this business going your jobs are safe and we've got to keep this business going we've got the potential here we've got the customers here we've got it might be coming in in dribbles at the moment but we know that once once we get over the over lockdown the work that's sitting on hand is going to come in, but we've got to we've we've got to manage it. So, if if you you know if if you can give us your best efforts, um, we will get through this, and then we can move move forward once 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 the work picks up, which is exactly what happened. And you do find, don't you, that in times of adversity, people do bring out the best in themselves. And we've seen that so often throughout business during this time, as they as people have been able to keep things ticking over and keep services mm. being provided. And that's that's true. I mean, they were very good, and and we 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 were able to get make it possible for one or two one or two of them to work at home because uh, two two of my sort of main, uh, main most important staff they both had young children and their wives were working, so they they not only had the problem of 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 of, 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 of fitting in with me, but they had to sort their children out. Their wives had to carry on working because. Both of them actually were in the in in the in, in the NHS or thereabouts, so they were they were quite important people and had to work, and so it did create a lot of problems for them. And I know mm. it was very I know they got they were very worried about it. 
And shifting focus ever so slightly, Patrick, and I would like to ask if you don't mind, um, when it yeah. came to sort of starting your own business and leaving yeah. behind an accounting career, what were some of the sort of big influences behind that decision which made you think that going into business, becoming a leader in your own right was going to be the way for you? Well, I I always wanted to work for myself. I was sort of... Uh, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I didn't like accountancy, which is why, which is why I left it. Mm. Um, although, having said that, the training has been invaluable ever since. Um, and it was then a question of of, of, of finding something that that, that, that I, I like the feeling of. I had, I had uh, my, my mother was very artistic. I had a sort of artistic background, and the, the, I fell off. Comp- picture framing completely by accident really um i something i started doing for myself um because i was collecting pictures and uh people said oh there's a nice phrase where'd you get them i said oh well i made them and 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 i started on my i started on the, the kitchen table um and that's how the business started and it got going very rapidly i mean i was in a very fortunate position because in, in the days when i started freelancing there was a there was a shortage of accountants and and there was a lot of work for freelance accountants. So I was able to fill in the gaps if I hadn't got anything to do in terms of picture framing by, by as, uh, using my accounting skills. Um, but that very rapidly um, disappeared, and the business sort of got, got going really quite quickly, and it was very exciting from then on. And um, a lot of people have described this period of time managing COVID as almost being like their first days back in business, going back to basics, having to try and find new ways of doing things, new income streams. Um, is that something that you find yourself agreeing with? Not specifically. I mean, I, I, I think it made me look much harder at the business. I mean, the sort of things that uh, that I was doing during during lockdown was that I sort of I, I went and and looked in detail at our stock. For instance, we carry a lot of stock, and and, and was able to an, analyze it. What we were using, what we were buying that was unnecessary. I was into things like wastage and you, you know day to day things that when you're very busy you tend to overlook. And it was quite interesting um, that that I was looking, discovering things which I hadn't had really sort of passed me by because I was so busy doing other things. I hadn't noticed that there was a dreadful waste of, for instance, paint in one example because people weren't shutting the tins properly and the paint was drying out. And, you know, the paint is ten pounds a tin and half a tin gone. You know, that's five pounds. And I know it. It is to some extent, you know, sort of looking after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. And so I spent a, I spent quite a lot of my time doing that sort of thing and getting the stock control under organizer, re reorganizing the workshop to make it run more efficiently, then we obviously had to make sure that for when people came back that it was always going to be COVID compliant so we had all the right uh, the necessary features in place to 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 it, it, it basically to make the sh- the staff make sure the staff were, were happy to be back and didn't feel in any way threatened. And just thinking about some of the people out there um, that have unfortunately um, lost um, their jobs uh, during this period of time and also those young people that may be listening to this podcast and are downhearted by what COVID is doing to their employment prospects. As somebody who has made a successful time of it going into business for yourself, what message would you have to give to those people to really sort of get them to pick their heads up at this time and get on the road to success? Gosh, that's a tough one. Um, 
I think it, it because I think because the outlook is so bleak is 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 what's so difficult there. I mean, you know, there are people are sort of uh, suggesting there might be four million unemployed within by the end of the winter and things like that. Um, it's very difficult. I think you you have to. I think presentation. If, if you if if you decide where you if you if you decide where you want to go, I think you have to present yourself properly. I think mm-hmm. you. Have, and you have to be quite positive about about your presentation. And I know that's terribly difficult in 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 a, in a situation because I've employed lots of people over the years, and 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 you can see people that are terribly nervous, and you have to sort of try and to be able to read through that. And somehow, if people can be positive, but be well presented, show that that you know they're keen and efficient. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's really the best you can do. I, 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 it's a it's a really really hard question. That and I, I think there are there are people I know we're going to be you know all, all being well we're going to be recruiting by the end of the winter in any case. Um, and uh, you, you know there's the sort of things I'm going to look looking for. And um, thinking about the uh, the future now, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, because I am conscious mm. that our time is beginning to draw to a close. I know mm. we don't have a crystal ball, but over the course of the next 12 months, um, it's going to be a bit of a difficult time for business. Um, we are going to have to persist with the new normal for um, at least a good chunk of the next year, probably until the yeah. springtime. But 12 months from now, what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved at your business, Patrick? And where indeed do you see yourselves being? Well, we, we've taken a step back. We we had a run of we had, we had a ten year run of, of continuous growth, which was which was great, and um, that's obviously taken a bit of a it's going to take a bit of a bashing this month this year. And I suspect it, it, I, I, I'm hoping we won't be anything worse than about thirty percent down on 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 the previous year. It's looking as though that's going to be quite possible. We might even do better than that. The first my first. Uh, First objective will be to get back to where we were last March, uh, which was the end of my financial year, coincidentally with, with the, you know the lock, lockdown coming in, and that's where that will be. And to that end, we're we're doing a lot of work on our new website, and we've got a lot we've got a lot of new things in in, in our minds. And I know that people of the people I deal with are very interested. They like new products. They like new stuff, and it's. And to some extent, the good thing from, if there is a good thing from lockdown, it gave us time. It gave me time. We had a new chap came to work for us. Gave me time to really train him properly. And and in that, during the course of that training, I was coming up with new things and thinking new things. And 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 it's all about coming to the market with with something new and fresh um, that people are going to want to buy. Basically. And honestly, I do certainly wish you all the luck in the uh, world going forward, Patrick, in getting the business back to where it was um, pre-pandemic for sure. And I really do hope there's some positive news to share very, very soon and we're not going to be stuck in this COVID rut for too much longer. And given that... I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and actually have you back on our show just to see how things are starting to come along. I have to say I'm a great optimist, and I think that helps enormously. And I think, you know, think going back to the question about young people, I think they have to appear to be optimistic. I think, you know, I, I think optimism, you know, if if it's if it's used properly, is is it makes you feel better. You you work better. You know, everything is better if you if you you just look at the the, the down the downside of everything. 
you know, it slows you down, it makes you feel bad and, you know, etc. So I, I think optimism is a great thing. You're absolutely right. Optimism certainly is infectious and we do all need a real dose of it during this trying time. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Patrick, I have to say, welcoming you onto the programme and it certainly uh, lifted my spirits um, having your optimism um, on the uh, the air with us as well. Um, and most importantly, um, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on, hopefully until we do get to us uh, to speak again, because there are still a great many variables in this and let's just keep our fingers crossed that we'll be up and out of this pandemic sooner rather than later. Thank you very much for speaking to me. It was a real pleasure, Patrick. Thank you ever so much for your time because it's so important in the context of what we're doing. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. I'd also like to reiterate that last message to every single one of our listeners tuning into the programme today as well. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Patrick Ireland onto today's programme. And coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held a number of positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during his days as an MP and served as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He's been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've 
become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. 
Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of... Thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work and those elements are true of all leaders ideas ability to build a team to have confidence in that team uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice sometimes at the most difficult times and you know the leaders council those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.